Welcome to Chit Chat Money. My name is Ryan Henderson, and I am joined by my co-host, Brett Schaefer. Today, we have our Thursday deep dive episode, where we interview an analyst to discuss a single stock or industry. And today, we have on the show, Simon Handrahan, and he's talking Pool Corp, a basically specialty retailer or distributor of pool supplies and other pool goods. I'll I'll let him kind of discuss the business in more depth, but it was a lot of fun to have him on the show. Um, First time having him on, and we can tell that he thinks uh, very similarly to us in terms of investing style and approach. But before we get to the interview, we want to talk about our presenting sponsor, which is Stratosphere. They are our investing home screen for fundamental research. They have awesome data visualization tools, SEC file aggregation, and custom-built KPI tools that you really can't find anywhere else. We use it literally on a daily basis. Um, Plenty of new things they're adding all the time. They recently just added employee count. So if you're trying to look at revenue per employee for a business or free cash flow per employee for a business to kind of measure productivity, it's a great place to do that. So ditch Yahoo Finance and up your investing knowledge by using stratosphere.io. That's stratosphere.io. You can also, it, uh, Stratosphere is completely free, but if you're interested in getting one of the upgraded paid plans, you can use promo code CCM for 15% off. If you're more interested in the platform, stick around after the episode. We have a quick little three-minute interview with the founder, Braden Dennis. But without further ado, here's our interview with Simon Handrahan. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, today we are welcomed by Simon Handrahan, first time guest. So this is our first time uh, getting to chat, although we've kind of engaged over Twitter a couple of times. He is the author or the creator of the Margin of Safety Investing Substack, um, and he's he's got a lot of writing up over there. So if you enjoy this, feel free to check it out. But today we are talking about Pool Corp, which is surprisingly a more polarizing stock than I thought. Um, so I guess maybe before we get into like the basics of the, of the business, how did you even come across it? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Um, yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, yeah, I guess this one was, uh, I would chalk it up to um, seeing some discourse on on Twitter uh, about the name a few years ago. It was something that I never really was aware of. Uh, I think it's kind of one of those unsexy names traditionally. It's it's a distributor, so it's not making like global headlines anywhere. Um, so yeah, just uh, seeing seeing some discussion on Twitter, uh, really probably around the COVID time when there was some uncertainty around like what people were going to do. Um, even though it was a beneficiary, like early on, there, there was a lot lots of thoughts that it probably wouldn't be um, before it was understood. You know, um, people were going to spend more time uh, at home. Uh, so there was lots of back and forth and without making too much judgment, I kind of decided that maybe I should look into it. Um, that's when I kind of noticed it was really um, uh, a longer term kind of <clears throat> compounder compared to what the um, last couple of years would maybe, maybe make it look like with the ups and downs from COVID. 
Oh, yeah, that's interesting. And we will talk about how they've been, you know, the COVID dynamics and what that kind of means going forward. But when a listener, I think, hears Pool Corporation, they probably assume that they sell stuff with pools or do something with pools. But what what do they specifically sell? What products and services do they offer? What are their important, you know, line items on their annual report? Yeah, for sure. So um, basically, the the model is they, they'd be correct in assuming they sell stuff around pools. Like the name is not terribly deceiving that way. Uh, they they sell all kinds of parts, um, both for like new installation, uh, you know, remodels and upgrades and things like that. And there's a lot of uh, recurring revenue items like chemicals and um, different things that just are required for annual or recurring maintenance throughout the season, depending on. The, the location if it's like a seasonal thing or not so like a lot of the items would be like pumps and filters and uh, again like chemicals things like that would be uh, a lot of the common things L- lately they've been moving into you know more cosmetic upgrades with uh, technology and lighting uh, you know fancier lighting and stuff so the kind of the pools of 40 years ago were a lot more straightforward and um, simpler fewer parts and uh, pools these days are all decked out uh, Pardon the pun with all kinds of extra things and gizmos and and that's kind of uh, been a growing uh, trend as well. So um, yeah, they're not like traditional. They're not uh, retailing to uh, the end users. Like they've got um, basically their distributors. So they've got like two thousand basically plus or minus uh, suppliers uh, um, to their network, and then they they have like uh, something like over one hundred twenty thousand. Uh, essentially contractors that would do pool maintenance for the end users. So, you know, you think about most pool owners aren't really doing a lot of the heavy lifting around the maintenance installs, upgrades for their pool. They're contracting that out. So that's uh, the the business model that they kind of have there. Okay. So kind of, yeah, kind of a niche retailer. I don't want to say, I was going to say like a Home Depot for pool supplies, but maybe a little more niche. Um, I guess what, What's been, you mentioned that it's been a compounder. I've kind of seen that floated around as well. Um, what's been the driver of that? And I guess, is there kind of a secular trend that's backing this at all? Yeah, it's been um, like, it's been steady that way. So like um, a couple, a couple, couple things have been driving that uh, compound growth over the last really like few decades. Um, you look at the industry they're in, it's still fairly fragmented. Like, a lot of the local um, distributors will be kind of mom and pop shops and um, like they're the number one uh, distributor now in the United States, but there's still a fairly fragmented industry there. So <clears throat> traditionally their growth has been like a combination of acquisitions and um, organic growth, like new, new centers that they've opened. They've still been uh, doing quite a few acquisitions. They've done a, did a, a big one a couple of years ago. Um, uh, mainly in Florida, that one. Uh, so yeah, it's been it's been a combination of things. Um, I think you look like the secular trends. Uh, there was essentially like <clears throat> a big boom in pool new pool formation, like as a part of the uh, housing boom, and then like the bus kind of crapped on that after two thousand eight. So uh, there was a big increase there. Um, but really, like when you think about pool installs, it's it's um, a matter of like you've got a pool uh installed when the house is built traditionally or sometimes a little bit later and then once that's there it's not necessarily something that's gonna um go away so 
often it'll be a feature of the house. You're not going to necessarily buy the house if you don't want the pool. So that would be a detractor maybe for someone who doesn't want it. But if you have it, you're probably going to put money into keeping it versus putting a whole bunch of money into removing it. Um, so it's a bit sticky that way. So the, basically there's been like an install base that's been slowly growing uh, in the US for quite quite a long time. Lately, there's been like migration to southern states um, where pools are obviously kind of more valuable. You've got more of a season to use them. Uh, and so, yeah, there's there's sort of kind of like secular trends that way as well. Um, if that makes sense. It's it's not like there's been one thing that's all of a sudden changed the dynamic of the industry. I don't think it's really just like a slow grind <laughs> upward. Um, and there's been hiccups along the way, but overall, it's been kind of slowing up into the right. Now, one kind of kind of follow up on that, as you said, you know, the installed base has grown. Do you have, or does management talk about the percentage of revenue that comes from these, you know, maintenance stuff and services? And has that grown over time as a percentage of revenue? Yeah, I don't I don't have all the historical numbers, but I know that like right now, they traditionally have been quoting around 60% um, recurring. So like maintenance uh, items. So I think that's where people, I certainly myself open their eyes like a little bit. You think about like a pool supply company, you'd probably originally think a lot of the revenue would come from like new installs or even maybe major renos. When in reality, that's actually a smaller percentage. So they, they break it down a little bit further. So 60% is like recurring maintenance items, uh, which are, like I said, because someone's not going to necessarily get rid of their pool very quickly. Those uh, those items are really like pretty sticky in that like if you don't spend on those items uh, every year, you're going to end up spending more to kind of pay for your sins of omission uh, kind of the next season generally or or whatever so they're really like not discretionary uh and i think that's where people mostly miss the uh kind of miss the boat unless you look into the business a little bit more but then yeah it's 20 percent uh the revenues from there have traditionally been uh remodel uh, major renovations and things like that and 20 percent from new new construction okay that that makes sense and then i want to talk about the acquisition stuff but first i think Maybe it's just me. Maybe, uh, I get a little bit confused on how you know you're a homeowner and w- what's the process that someone would go through to pick pool corporations. So, say I'm someone I want to have a pool, or I'm a company building a house and I want to have a pool in this house. Who are you know? Where do they go? Do they go to the pool corp store? Do they go to a pool corp website? Do they talk to a contractor? And who are they competing with for that bid? Like, w- w- what's that process? Right. Um, yeah, we'll break it down a little bit. Um, I don't have like every detail, but I think it's a good question. So like what I would say is it's definitely not the end user deciding to go to full corp. Um, they might happen to be familiar with some of their branded uh, like outlets, essentially. Uh, their distribution centers. They're, they're really just like warehouses and, and they have like, you know, a, a desk for contractors to go and order parts. The relationship really with full corp is with the... Um, the, like the contractors and, and uh, those service providers. So like the basically you've got like a relationship with those existing contractors and what they can offer um, these clients is, is really the advantage that Full Corp uh, has is their size, right? So they've got like their network of, of stores um, 
because of that, you've got like that uh, network effect where now you've got suppliers uh, with better access to and end users that way. So it's more valuable the bigger they get. And I think that's been part of the kind of the, the story as well. Like as they grow, they become more and more um, powerful that way. Um, but yeah, so if you're a homeowner, you, you can talk to like a contractor, essentially uh, a specialist that way. You're not necessarily pricing out parts per se, right? So that's the other kind of advantage that a distributor has with these niche things, especially because you're, you're going to buy a pool based on sticker price that the contractor can kind of tell you. And one of those inputs is definitely price. But from the contractor's perspective, what they need is um, what they need is like a, a good supply uh, inventory that's available, a wide selection, so that they can go to their customer, the homeowner, let's say, and point out, hey, here's here's your, you know, here's your menu of options essentially. And so that's where Pool Corp has an advantage because if you go to a smaller distributor, they're not going to have that uh, selection uh, necessarily, or they might be backlogged, or they might not have it available. Whereas uh, Pool Corp has a bigger uh, network to pull from, so um, that's kind of the advantage they have over the smaller players is that there's a true size advantage, um, which is like the least uh, amazing sounding thing, but it's <laughs> it's one of those boring things that. Uh, it's hard to get around. Like being small is uh, uh, kind of a big disadvantage in the distribution business, as you can imagine. Uh, I don't know if that's some question, but it's kind of the high level take, I guess. Anyway. No, yeah, that helps. Are there any um, like stats, specific stats around market share that you know of um, versus yeah. like? Are there any other big players like Pool Corp, or is it mostly those small, smaller retail shops? It's mostly smaller. I know, I don't know specifics to be honest, but like I know that like private equity has recently been buying up uh, some of the smaller players as well in a bid to to roll up like that the industry that way. So um, the last at least few years, they've been a kind of a rising threat that way to the to the size leadership of, of Pool Corp. I don't know of any like specific publicly listed. I could be wrong, but I uh, don't believe there's any uh, top of my head anyway. Yeah, and well, I think the big takeaway. Are, go ahead, Ryan. I was just going to say you've kind of talked around the recent situation with COVID. Can you explain maybe what's gone on over the last two years that's kind of positioned the business to where it is now? I, I saw. Um, I guess it looked like there was quite the revenue acceleration during kind of 2021. Can you describe, I guess, yeah. why? Yeah, for sure. So I think like everyone would recognize the like kind of the amount of savings people had uh, during COVID. We had a lot of work from home. So all of a sudden people's backyards were becoming more and more valuable. Um, to some extent, I'm sure some people decided to, to build pools that would have never built pools. And then other people maybe decided uh, I always wanted a pool. Now is a great time to do it since I'm not commuting to the office five days a week, let's say. Um, so I think there's a combination of like new customers that maybe never would have done that. And uh, probably a lot of just pull forward if you want to think of it that way. Uh, I think we're seeing that now is that like some of that pull forward is starting to to wane and it'll, it'll dip down. Like they're <laughs> looking at this year kind of projecting some declines in, in new construction and uh, a little bit in reno as well. So yeah, like I, I think that's just a common, that's the common story anyway. 
Um, there was also just a lot of uh, inventory issues to to some extent. Like they they got ahead of it and they built up inventory a lot. So that was another thing that kind of happened. Um, things got pulled ahead and they ordered up and they had lots of inventory and now they're kind of deleveraging from that, if if you will. Is I would imagine just kind of guessing based on what the products would be that like these aren't things that depreciate super fast. So is it like, are, are the items that they sell or the inventory, is it generally like long shelf life items? It just takes a while to kind of sell through them. Yeah. I think for the most part, that's true. I, I know that like, you know, mechanical components and things like that are going to have pretty long relative shelf lives. Um, I'm sure to some extent, like it's, a, it's costly to have a big inventory no matter the shelf life. So there's probably some, uh, I don't know that there's like price cutting. It's not like fashion where you're going to have like big sales just to get rid of inventory that way. So I don't think they'll have like negative effects from that overall. It's more of just cash flow wise. It was a, you know, a difficult thing to manage. Um, but it, I think overall it's worked out uh, okay. And like you said, like there's not a short, short uh, life for most of these items. So it shouldn't be like a huge long-term issue. Yeah, and that makes sense. And you mentioned the acquisition strategy. You mentioned the you know competitive advantages that that derives through their scale. And I guess speaking of inventory, that can be an advantage as well, where some of these smaller players might not be able to have the inventory assortment that a pool corporation has. Can you talk about the acquisition strategy and how does that enhance their competitive advantage? Or excuse me, just competitive advantage? Has it you know widened over time? You think maybe over the last five, ten, twenty years? Yeah, um, it's it's definitely been like one of the keys to their success has been being able to essentially like roll up a fragmented industry that way. Um, when you know when they were smaller, it was I would say a little bit easier to to do in terms of like bite sized acquisitions. Um, I think a lot of people have been critical of their recent acquisition in Florida, um, about perhaps overpaying and and that. So I think I think we're seeing some caution with larger acquisitions, which is which is healthy. I think that's good. Um, I think traditionally um, they've paid like reasonable prices, and because they've got the advantage of the scale, like they've been able to pay a, a price, you know. That other people maybe just couldn't swallow because like they as soon as they do an acquisition they're going to have an advantage that they can uh, improve margins and deal with inventory better you know deal with overhead costs a lot better than smaller players uh, can do and they're just they're used to the industry so they're um, pretty good operators that way um what i would say is that like i think at this point like i'd be <clears throat> i'd like to see them kind of be more opportunistic with their acquisitions and not just Plot money and acquisitions as much as maybe historically they've been able to get away with. So that is maybe one thing I would look to. I know like their capital allocation strategy has been like a percentage of uh, free cash flow devoted to, to that in terms of uh, allocation. And I, I think I think they're reasonably cautious of, of not overpaying, but uh, it's something to, to guard against. Uh, as as we all kind of recognize, like the the bigger uh, the organization gets sometimes there's a lot of onus to to start chasing bigger and bigger deals and i think that's a often a, a recipe for disaster so that's something to keep an eye on i think as they grow do they like rebrand these stores like to like 
pool corp store or whatever or is it like um, no they have of... like they have different branding different areas uh okay. it's, it's more of a regional thing i believe and i don't know that they're like quick to worry about what the branding is on the store like because it's not a retail uh operation they're, they're not as worried about that i don't think um uh yeah i think it's more of a regional choice that way makes sense the and did you mention this you may have mentioned this already and i must might have missed it but is there like just and i'm guessing the answer is yes do they get kind of discounts from suppliers because they have such a large store base that it makes it difficult that's to one that's one yeah that's one uh, aspect um the, the other aspect that they have with their suppliers that helps them is um because of their uh because of their reach like they can plan to look ahead to next season like it's a very seasonal business as you can imagine so if you're dealing with a supplier and you can tell them oh by the way by the way like next season i'd like to put in an order now um ahead of time they're able to do that so they can get that scans for that reason because then the suppliers can plan their finances accordingly right their operations accordingly so um that's a really big advantage that they have over the smaller players as well as they can negotiate, not just because of volume, like that's one aspect, but just the timing of the order. Um, it makes the life of a supplier, uh, you know, a, a lot easier to manage. Yeah. That, uh, I guess that would certainly make sense. The, we, we mentioned, we kind of talked about it briefly before we hit record was like the, the European opportunity. And before I asked that question, what do you what do you think still like the opportunity in the u.s like are, are they getting anywhere near towards saturation or is there still like plenty of room to expand the top line yeah i think you know to be honest i think like a lot of the easy pickings are, are perhaps in the past so i think the answer to that is a kind of a soft maybe um i still think there's lots of room to grow like as much as they've um rolled up Quite a bit of the industry like they're all they're they're really in a few states in terms of footprint like florida um texas now they're to big in uh some areas of texas like they're they're not even a, you know even in those states there's quite a bit of uh for them like white space to to do so they've been like still opening up new centers um regionally so it's, it's one of those things where perhaps like the industry in those good markets is is a mature industry but given like their um given the kind of the network effects that you think about how valuable having closer access to certain contractors in certain areas might be they could you know strategically be opening centers that they previously wouldn't have bothered to open because there's no return but now that they've got like you know a web of stores here here and here well if you open one in between like you don't need to open maybe a, a full center let's say but there might be an advantage that way that they can they can deploy capital there and open a new center that other like other networks just don't, wouldn't be able to do that because uh, they don't have the corresponding like nodes in that network. So I I think as much as like it's a mature industry in terms of like uh, players, I, I don't know that I don't know that that means that there's a lack of uh, new stores to open. Like I think of like AutoZone as a corollary, like they've been still opening new stores and taking American share and, and doing that for. How long now right like they're very mature industry that way but they've been finding better and better ways to it, it might not just be like the number of stores it might just be how they size them 
uh, where they where they open them, things like that. So yeah, like regionally, I think there's opportunity in the states. Um, <clears throat> I think yeah, that's a long-winded answer, but I don't think it's necessarily as easy as it was in the past. But there's still pretty pretty good room to grow in, in, the, in the U.S. Okay, and, and uh, I saw in your write-up that they're you know they have a small business uh, in Europe. At least it might not be small in Europe, but it's small relative to their uh, yeah. their own top line. How do you think about that market uh, just in general? Yeah, I, like I um, I wouldn't speak too long about it, but uh, right now it's like a five percent uh, part of their their revenue business is as uh, in Europe. And I know they've been pushing to to go there. I, I think the timing was maybe not great. Like Europe as as a whole, the economy hasn't been amazing compared to the Western world that way. So, um, uh, yeah, I would look at it more like a like a call, uh, a free call item in in the future. Um, I I don't know enough to speak too too much on it, but I do know that like they're they're currently the number two. So they're not like a small fish in the pond or anything like that. Um, I think Europe is more challenging just given like the, the jurisdictions, right? Like they're more segregated in different countries compared to the States that way. So just as a distributor in general, you're not going to see like the benefits that something that the U S uh, looks like. In your write-up, you talked about a growth of, you know, maintenance and renovations. And I'm just wondering why that occurs and why it grows as a percentage of revenue is it because just the installed base steadily grows higher and you also talked about maybe you know the um the digitization the the modernization of some of these pools is that a big growth driver too yeah i, I think there's there's probably two two questions there I'll, I'll try to answer the first one uh first i think if i can and then if i don't answer the second one maybe remind me uh so yeah the, the first question is like about uh what's causing that like um growth in, in renovation uh that line item is basically you're that, that's what you're getting after i think um i i believe like if you look at the so the the number of installs like the base of installs is growing over time and along with that the second component to that is like um similar but different in that like the age the average age is increasing so they management speaks to the like they're, they're they claim the average age is over 20 years approaching 25 um which does make sense especially if you think about in a few years we'll be approaching like the kind of the uptick in, in new installs that happened during like 2006 or like the housing boom so there is a, a lot of new installs around that time so within like five years from now that average age is, is going to be between 25 and, and 30 or something like that so I think that's a big driver over the next, uh, say, decade, um, where it's not just the number of uh, pools that are installed anymore. It's also about the mix. So, like a pool that's ten years old, you may not do much to. You might think that's you know that's a modern pool, but uh, one that's twenty five years old, you might start thinking, you know, this this really needs like to be modernized. Um, and so maybe that feeds into your second question, <clears throat> which is the question around like the modernization of like light, lighting and integration of technology and, and things like that in the pool. So I I think, you know, I have lots of theories on that, but I don't know that I have any special insights, but it seems to me like pools is something that 
traditionally has been very like rudimentary, you know, it's been part of your backyard and it was a hole in the ground and you treated the water and you circulated it. These days, like a pool is part of your Instagram page. <laughs> if you know, if you know what I'm saying. So I, I think uh I think for those pool owners, especially of a certain age, like they look at it more of a lifestyle item than it ever was in the past. Um, and uh, without sounding too cliche, like <clears throat> I think one, there's a lot of technology uh, creep in our, in our lives. Uh, I mean, look what we're doing now. And, uh, and I think that happens everywhere. And, and the place where that happens the most on a relative basis is like stuff that is very simple. So, uh, things like pools that were previously holes in the ground uh, with water in them now become uh, connected uh, items with special lighting and, and things like that. So it's as simple as um, I think it's as simple as that. Um, I think people are attached to those things a lot more now due to, I don't know, I'm going to sound like an old man, but like due to social media and things like that, like people have much more attachment. So I think the value to the customer uh, is kind of increasing as these things become more and more attached to technology and, and things like that. I know that's like a hippie dippy answer, but I think that's, no, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it makes sense. I mean, you got stuff like, you know, you can change the temperature from your phone or stuff yeah. like that. And that, that seems it, it's kind of like an easy thing. Modern and like a, a connected house, right? Like the Google home stuff or, or whatever it is you use. Like, Mm -hmm. similar that way yeah and that's and more that, revenue for full court and yeah. touching on simon's point i i I'm no longer on instagram but i think you're right they I, I thought i feel like pool posts are probably very common and it's kind of a part of your social image slash slash lifestyle i guess another question that i have is is there a digital component to this business like do they do they sell online um in i guess kind of on the flip side of that, is there any risk that some big online retailer just steals share from them over time? Yeah. So the first question about is there? Uh, yes, they do have like a some. Uh, they do have some small part of the revenue that's been shifting towards like their online uh, store. Essentially, um, I don't think that's like a huge. Well, I know that's not a huge part of their business right now. I think that was more of a reaction towards the last few years of people kind of looking for that as an option. So it was likely more of a, hey, we really need something to like satisfy our customers in, uh, right now. Um, for those like maybe less willing to go face to face. Um, I I don't know if there's like <clears throat> longer term, maybe there's some threats there. I would tend to think it's more of like the, uh, more of like the auto zone or O'Reilly Automotive, like those types of businesses where like you're not as likely to treat it like Amazon, if you will. Um, I I don't see like contractors. I think there's some there's I think there's some contractors that would say, okay, well, let me order all the kind of stuff I the consumables, the the chemicals, the stuff like that that I that I know I'm gonna order and but they probably have things set up that they can just call a store and order it like that anyway. So I don't know that that's any different. Um, yeah, I, I, I think part of the, because it's a niche thing, like I don't know that like 
you're going to have a lot of upstarts that come in and like try to displace um, this kind of distribution network that way. Um, some will probably try, I'm sure, but um, I think traditionally that's been a challenge that I think um, Amazon has not really, you know, uprooted, you know, the plumbing industry, for instance, or <laughs> those types of things. So it kind of seems more analogous to that than like a, than like a retailer uh, that Shopify would support or Amazon or whatever. Yeah, I think it's probably fair to assume that if Amazon hasn't disrupted them yet, it's probably kind of resilient to safe. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's probably fairly insulated. Um, I guess let's talk about the return on invested capital. It, they have a really strong ROIC. Um, why is it so strong, and and why has it been able to trend higher over time? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, but I think it's it's pretty strong because they you know the the model that they have is not that capital intensive. Like. Um, you know they do have a network of stores and whatnot but like that i don't know that there's like a ton of invested capital required to get the marginal dollar like as they grow it gets uh, easier and easier to squeeze out a marginal dollar in a lot of sense and i think that's why you're probably seeing the roic numbers kind of trend slowly upwards over time uh i think that would be i think that's probably like the good sign you would look for in any distributor business is like if that's not happening, then do you really have that network effect of, you know, having a stronger two-sided uh, customer, uh, you know, supplier and, and like end customer on the other side? And if you don't see that in a distributor, I'm not sure. Um, probably something you want to consider. <laughs> and that's kind of the idea of distributors is that you should get better and better as it get bigger. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Like, I, I think. They, they don't need more and more capital so that's to get the marginal dollar out so i think that's maybe a reason like you look at their margins and everything else and they've been just trending up as well so um easier and easier to squeeze out some uh, profits there i think yeah yeah roic very important to track for a company like this as we wrap things up let's talk valuation we haven't mentioned it really yet how are you valuing valuing shares today what are you looking for over the next few years? Kind of the general valuation talk. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know, how are you looking at it for kind of maybe an earnings compression as we come out of the COVID period, stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, like without speaking too many numbers, because that would take too long, but like, like I think they're trading, you know, if you look at them as kind of a sales multiple, uh, kind of in the mid to higher end of their traditional range. So knowing that you'll have a little bit of compression this year, to me, like they, they don't seem like, cheap in the short and medium term and i wouldn't be surprised if the price came down uh in recognition of that i think given that more people myself included have recognized the long-term value that they've created like you're not you're not going to necessarily get like a crash in the price either um the way i look at it is i think you'll see like compression in the in the um like the earnings because like the the benefit of some of the size will go down as the revenue goes down so that leverage will go the other way um over the short term so over the next year year and a half maybe even two years and then they should kind of keep going uh up and to the right after that i, I suspect like the the company's projecting like six to nine percent growth over the longer term uh, which is conservative compared to their um past so i think that's a not a crazy assumption to think that they can hit that um especially with the aging uh, pool base and install base that, that we've talked about. Um, 
yeah, like valuation, it does seem a little bit rich here. Like I, I own a, uh, a small amount, but I'm not um, necessarily, I wouldn't be adding here myself. I, I think if you can get um, the price down towards like the $300 range, I, I think it's a reasonable price to pay that you, you, I'd be comfortable assuming like a, like a low double digit return from there uh over the longer term like <clears throat> i think you know you talk about like the exposure to the housing uh market and things like that so um that could could go down in the short term um but in the long term there's a lot of secular like uh tailwinds pushing it in the right direction so uh, uh to me like I, i'm not so worried about long term i, I think uh, the short term the price is kind of not priced to perfection but it's priced more than fairly do you think it looks like margins have trended up over time? Do you expect that to continue as as kind of the store base expands? Um, marginally, I, I don't know that. Like you know, there's only so much margin you can wring out of a, a business. So this isn't like it's not Visa, right? Like <laughs> you're not going to get ever increasing uh, margin expansion that way. Uh, and I think that you see this year, you'll see the leverage working the other way with with the operating leverage in the company. So um, the answer, I guess, is no. I'm not overly optimistic that forever the margins will increase. I, I think they'll probably start leveling off here at some point in the next few years. And they, they've, they're looking a lot more like a mature business that way, right? So what do you think of the management team? Um, I don't. I don't think strongly either way of them. I think they've been historically like pretty good uh, allocators of capital, and they've they've basically done what they've said, and and they've told investors what they plan on doing. So as long as they keep those two things um, in line, I, I'm happy. I, I don't think they need to be geniuses. This is certainly not a um, it's not it's not a complicated business like a lot of the uh interesting ones people like to talk about right so from that perspective just do what you say and i'm happy um uh, they're not ripping off minority shareholders uh, historically anyway like they've got a new ceo over the last couple of years couple of years so uh we'll make sure that um he kind of keeps up that that motto but um it's, it's basically they've been been right by shareholders uh for the last 20 years so as long as they keep doing what they're saying uh they're gonna do it i'm pretty happy that way Okay, last question, unless Brett ends up having any more, but uh, this is the pre-mortem. We try to ask this on, on all our deep dives. How could this go wrong? What what are the risks here? Why would pool court be a bad investment from here? Yeah, <clears throat> from here, like I think the price is, is pricing in a lot of um, kind of medium term. After the next year or two, it's pricing in a lot of expectations about continued growth from there. So. Um, I think from here, like you, you've got to be sure that <clears throat> those like levers that we talked about with the secular uh, tailwinds um, will be there for you. And if they're not, then likely, you know, best case, you're not, you're just gonna, you're gonna perform a little bit. I don't. Worst case, like <clears throat> you get a housing crash or something like that, which definitely could hurt the business. Um, no, I don't think even that. Like they survived 2008 reasonably well. Um, so more of a short-term risk, I think, even that. Okay, I think that's all the questions we have. Brett, you give me the nod to 
uh, go ahead with the disclosure. So I guess uh, before we sign off here, um, people that want to follow your work, uh, read more of it, what's the best place to either uh, keep up with you or keep up with your work? Yeah, for sure. Um, they can follow me on Twitter um, at uh, Moss underscore investing for marginal safety. Um, and yeah, my Substack writing is at uh, marginalsafetyinvesting.com. Awesome. Well, I'm going to throw a disclosure on this. Uh, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners, large capitals, clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Simon, for coming on the show. We look forward to hopefully having you on again sometime, Um, but that's going to do it. Uh, We'll see you all next time. I am welcomed by the founder of our exclusive sponsor, Stratosphere.io, uh, Braden Dennis. Braden, welcome. I wanted to basically give listeners that are interested in Stratosphere more context around what the platform is. So let's start there. What is Stratosphere? And then why did you decide to start it? Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I'm glad to be sponsoring the podcast as, as a listener myself. I like the deep dives. I like the different guests, the different perspectives on uh, some interesting companies. So I think it's a good concept for a podcast, which is kind of what led me down to making Stratosphere in the first place, which was I was making content online and frustrated with the tools that were available to me. So I started building uh, a very scrappy version of the product just for free, just to figure out like, how can I overlay 10 years of financial side by side up to 35 years we have now? And how can I actually build out a proper database of, of company KPIs that are not just revenue, but like, if you're looking at like Costco, like how many warehouses do they have? How many paid members are, are in like our Costco members? Or, you know, if I want to do a comp against like the streaming, like how many Netflix subs versus uh, HBO plus discovery plus, no Disney plus, like how do I build out proper comps of those? Because those are the metrics that actually move the business. Those are the ones that actually move the needle more than any like gap financial metric you'll find. And so it started off as just purely a passion project. And I figured let's just make the leap into entrepreneurship and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, it brought, brought us here today. Yeah. And like you mentioned, it, it is the stuff that you can't find anywhere else, at least not in a, I mean, you could find it page by page and on their financials. Exactly. But. You can go through 35 uh, PDF filings and find it, be, be my guest. And, and, that, and that's basically what we did for a long time. So what do, I guess, maybe describe the pricing model so people know, sure. but uh, you're going to say it, it, there's there's a free platform. What do free users get? Yeah, good good thing. Cause our, our mission was to always build a free platform. And and so we really kept true to our mission and give like an amazing platform for free, which gives you 10 years of financial statements on 40,000 global securities. So we don't list you just to US securities, it's on global stocks. We give you a watch list, the screener, comparisons on competitors, fundamental charting up to 10 years filings, transcripts. You can look at the press releases right inside the app. 
news, ETFs, funds, super investors, hedge fund letters, investor holdings, and financial calendars. Those are all the features you'll get on uh, on the free tier. Now, if on on the the middle tier, the personal tier, you're going to unlock up to 35 years of financials and just kind of like nice to have like quality of life, like notifications being built in, um, price targets for building models, uh, like business owner mode where you can hide prices, like kind of like just that next level for, for individual investors who want to level up. And then the, the top tier is for like investment teams and professionals who want to unlock that KPI data and request KPI coverage as well. Like a firm will be like, here, we want these 10 names in our coverage and in your coverage. And then you'll have basically our, our entire universe that we're looking at, which is great, right? Because like earnings season comes around and we have it updated within 15 minutes when Netflix comes out with their net subscriber ads, like it's right there in one place, uh, especially easy to handle around the, the peak of earnings season that, that matters a lot for these people. And so we have a, a premium tier for that as well. That's the, that's the three plans that are available today. And now a perfect time to shameless plug our code. If you use CCM, you get 15% off any of the paid plans, but I think that covers it pretty well. Uh, if you're interested, please go ahead and check out stratosphere.io. We'll, we'll have a link in the uh, description as well, but uh, thank you, Braden, for joining us. Ryan, keep it up. I really like what you and Brett are doing and uh, I'll be listening along.